0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Anna Lindner, and today we will be talking to Dr. Sarah Quesada about her book. Um, Dr. Quesada is an assistant professor in the Department of Romance Studies at Duke University, and she studies the intersections of Atlantic World Studies, African Diaspora Studies, and World Literature. Her forthcoming book, The African Heritage of Latinx and Caribbean Literature, which we'll be discussing today, examines the engagement of the most widely read Latinx and Latin American authors of the last 50 years with Francophone, Anglo, Lusophone, and African writers in historiography to identify the African-derived causes of a Latin excision from Africa. Dr. Quesada thanks so much for joining us today. Delighted
1: to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah. um, I loved reading your book. It was a great kind of overview of those African roots that do often get left off when we talk about the Caribbean and Latin America. And before we get into the book itself, I wanted to talk briefly about you. um, If you want to add anything about where you grew up, school you went to, um, how this book came to be, what inspired you, just so we have some background information.
1: Yeah, happy to. Um, there are different versions of this answer. I guess it depends, uh, you know, the further reasons about, you know, how I came to writing this book. Um, I think that the the personal side of it was that I grew up In Mexico, my father is a Mexican anthropologist, and so from a very early age, I um, was very conscious that to be—he was an anthropologist that also specialized in pre-Columbian civilizations—and from a very early age, I came to understand that to be what to be Mexican, regardless of race, meant to trace a heritage to. Both indigenous and Spanish roots, at least from what from the places that we would visit on his excursions, right? Um, the colonial and the indigenous roots of, of you know, Mexicanity, and um, and never is you know. Never is one site of memory more prominent about this form of heritage or, or, or driving home this notion of our hybridity in Mexico than La Plaza de las Tres Culturas in Tlatelolco, right? Where, um, you know, the three cultures that meld together in this memorial site is this idea that we are Iberian or Spanish, whatever that means, you know, that's complicated. Indigenous, again, whatever that means, and that those two conform what is to be a mestizo, Right. But nowhere in that triangulation is it ever mentioned um, that there's this African referent, right? That the African referent is absent, really, in that triangulation, despite the fact that since 1518, Mexico through asientos on what was then Mex- what was what was what is today Mexico rather, um, through asientos imported hundreds and thousands of uh, enslaved peoples from Africa and established of a, of. A, a prominent plantocracy that by the 17th century, there was the, bl- the black population by far, um, w- the black population was much uh, more significant than the white population there. But it's not necessarily a story, a historical, uh, you know, point that is mentioned in, you know, historical accounts in Mexico or culturally. It's not something that we remember in these spatial memory sites. And it's certainly not something that's contained in Mexican literary history. So um, I think that I was very drawn to Caribbean literature because of its the ways in which it's much more um, I would not not obvious but much more determinante, you know, like it's much more focused on uh, bringing home or or, or ascent, uh, uh, underlining, you know, the importance and the impact of the plantocracy in its literature. And I thought that um, to compare one form of literature the to the other uh, would would make it clearer for me how to um, unveil this these hidden histories. Um, in Mexican literature, which is part of my actually my second project now, um, but yeah, the Caribbean was sort of the key to unlock these ways in which uh, the African reference is absent. Um, and then on top of that, I spent a lot of time uh, in French Guyana. I was there for uh, almost a year um, as a um, in assistant de langue, as the as the French department, educational department calls it. Um, and I was in high schools in a high school there in Cayenne, and uh, and I was just so yeah, so just and uh, impressed by the ability of my students to be able to, uh, wrestle with the, not wrestle, but sort of, um, uh, be able to inhabit different identities all simultaneously. Um, some, a notion of the Caribbean that I was, I've always been very drawn to, um, because it really goes beyond this, uh, this notion of hybridity. Right. Um, but yeah, so I think that those would have been the roots of, of this project. Right. Um, in more personal terms. Um,
0: yeah. Great. Um, and that question of hybridity is so fascinating. And your, job, your book does such a good job of tracing that. Um, and to start getting at that, one of the first things you mentioned is the UNESCO slave route, um, where tourists are invited to visit the sites of the slave trade, And this is in certain places, um, certain countries in Africa, et cetera. And I was wondering if you could walk us through this as a neoliberal and capitalist phenomenon that's happening now, you know, currently, um, kind of in our present moment of trying to account for and wrestle with the realities of slavery Um, and talking about that in relation to your guiding praxis which is visiting text while reading sites, um, as you say.
1: Yeah. So um, when I was in grad school, um, I came across a novel that I was very drawn to. Um, I was reading it in Ivan Yarbrough Bejarano's uh, wonderful seminar. I mean, it's just, it was such a great seminar. I was actually auditing it, and I was I regretted I didn't take it for credit. But anyways, um, I read this novel by Cuban-American Nacho Bejas uh, in the title of it is ruins. And I ended up, of course, writing about it for the book. Um, it's this beautiful novel. If people haven't read it, they, they really must. It's a, it's a must. It's it's a, it's a, such a complicated, uh, complex, such complex novel that is set during one of our only novels set in Cuba. Um, it's set during the quote unquote special period, the 1990s, devastating, uh, you know, economic depression that Cuba goes through, um, Summer of 1992, when um, right after the the Soviet Union collapses and the United States and tightens its embargo, um, and uh, at that moment um, Cubans decide to flee in uh, mass in balsas, right rafts, um, and you know, just made by their own, you know, their own in any way that they can, um, and uh, and and try to make it to to the United States, so. Um, and this is a novel about a character, the main protagonist chooses to stay. and uh, But in choosing to stay, he metaphorically, symbolically, imaginatively also travels. And he actually ends up traveling to an imagined Africa, what I term in the book an, an African safari. And, uh, and it's really a novel that in the end, at least for me, it does various, the novel does various things. I mean, like I said, it's very complex. Um, but one of the, one of the, At the root of this novel, at least for me, one of the things that it anchors is this notion that Latinidad has gone so far to commodify the imaginary of Africa that we no longer can see it in its particularity. And it does this through using UNESCO slave sites and very prominent ones. Um, if, for example, Gorée in uh, in in Senegal, the Maison des Esclaves, or the House of Slaves, um, that we find on the island off of Dakar, um, in Senegal. And then there's this other one, Badagry, Nigeria, that is the one that perhaps shows up the most in the novel, and it's in the novel really insists on this on this term, Badagry, on and on. And so. Um, of course, doing a little bit of research, I found out a little bit more about this UNESCO slave route, which I had heard of before because I had read it in City uh, of Hartman's Lose Your Mother, It's brilliant. Um, you know, um well, I know what you would call it. It's just so many things. Manifesto memoir, critical work on, you know, heritage tourism, etc. Um, and I term it different things in the book too. Uh, but but uh, I wanted so I was very intrigued by this this notion that somebody like You know, Cuban-American, Nacho Bejas, who's, of course, not of African ancestry or doesn't have any, you know, she's she's not of African extraction. Uh, But she but she does very much care about this notion of memory. I mean, you could argue that most of her novels um, are really, um, really explore the different valences of memory and memorialization. And in this one particular case, she does she does these observations about how Africanist particularity only hinges upon this memory site that we find in Africa; these really prominent ones. And so it made me think, well, you know, because I previously I'd actually um, done um, fieldwork in the, at these sites, and what I found to be true there is that there was a lot of fiction that was told at these sites. So this is what brought me into this um, this, this this theoretical apparatus, right? That if a uh, fiction like Acho Bejas' novel Ruins used physical sites of memory to contest this notion of a lost Africa and try to build a bridge, in what ways would these in turn physical memorials use fic- fiction to the same means, right? And so there you have this mutually constituting apparatus, this textual memorials and physical memorials that um, encompass an opportunity, to re- an opportunity to revisit uh, this literature that I call Latin African literature. Um, and in many ways, it's not hybrid. It's not about hybridity at all. Actually, this this um, this book is really more about. um how to visualize, again, Africa as an archive, Africa as an actual space that one can revisit, reclaim the archive and understand through their own point of view in the ways that in which, you know, Black Atlantic studies have thought of Africa teleologically, right, as an imaginary, rather than, again, like an African African archive to be probed. So... Um, and I find that that's very much something that Acho novel Ruins does, for example. You know, it it insists that, that we do away with all these essentialized ways, these exotified ways or uh, tropicalized ways in which we view um, Africanness, but by extension, Blackness.
0: Yeah, and, you know, I kind of earlier said, yeah, hybridity, which is in some ways how African contributions to the Caribbean, both in terms of people's genetics and also culturally and lots of other ways, gets reduced, right? Um, the idea of mestizaje as being the solution and now people are really – scholars are really pushing back against that and seeing how that is a problem and you you do talk about that um, and that's really important to note. Um, and going off of what you just said about anti-blackness, um, I think your book does a really good job of addressing anti-blackness in its very complex and multiple forms. <laughs> um, and you talk about, you know, African heritage along with colonialism, imperialism in Latin America, Caribbean Western countries, and then also even in African context. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about how the United States and other countries' imperialism, but mostly United States imperialism, has led these very famous, well-known Caribbean authors uh, who you focus on and Latin American authors to, quote, render Africa fearful, commodify it, obliterate its history or distort it in each of the case studies that you examine?
1: Yeah, I mean, so each one of those, you know, I don't know what you would call them: items, paradigms, moments. Are uh, constitute the four chapters of the book, right? Um, in Juno Diaz, I talk about um, how um, anti-black discourses that you can read, or more specifically, anti-Haitian discourses in the Dominican and Dominican diaspora uh, discourse have um, have its have some of its roots. Of course, not all of it, uh, but but can trace roots back to anti-black uh, discourses in, um, in Benin, the cradle of, uh, well, of course it was former Dalme, but the cradle of Vodun or voodoo, as we call it now. Um, you know, and so, and there's some, there's something to be said about these discourses, uh, produced in Africa, Sorry, within Africa about Africans that becomes distorted, right in the archive. And so I, I make a, so I make those, those connections there. And, the, and that, of course, that historical marker has very little to do with the. US um, in, the, in that instance. Perhaps the, where the U.S imperialism is most relevant um, is in the second chapter um, tied to the third. And the second and third chapter speak to each other because they're both about the Angolan inter- Cuban intervention in Angola, in which the United States was involved um, uh, somewhat um, uh, indirectly, um, although, albeit directly, <laughs> through the CIA in its machinations. Um, but. Um, but what interests me there is that, well, second chapter is, I've already discussed a little bit on Achiovejas. Achiovejas is um, critiquing in the novel in some ways, the fact that Cubans blame the imaginary of Africa for the special period, rather than placing blame on say the United States, right. And it's imperialism, um, the embargo, um, et cetera. And, 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 So Africa emerges as sort of this quote unquote curse in the novel where the, even the own protagonist who dreams about going back to Africa all the time calls it such, he says, you know, I wonder, I I wonder if um, all the plagues or the famines is the curse for having once sold their own sons and daughters. And he's alluding obviously to the slave trade and the, the implication here of course, is that African, the African elite were also implicit, complicit, excuse me, in the, uh, in this um colonial uh trade right and uh, in this genocide but um so again it's it's sort of begging to think about the picture of the atlantic holistically right and think about once again africa in its particularity uh, as 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 having some some agency in this memory and and coming to terms with uh with a referent that for so long for latinos has been co- totally absent and that Really comes off to roost in Garcia Marquez, which is the second chapter, and it's connected to the to the sorry the third chapter, which is connected to the second, because Garcia Marquez also wrote about Angola, uh, even though uh, that reference has totally disappeared and has become obliterated, and that's why that chapter is is titled as such, you know, obliteration. Um, And what's obliterated is the very marked uh, Latin Africa that Garcia Marquez has always, um, time after time, been espousing and been uh, dedicating his life to, really. um, Arguably not in his fiction, necessarily, because, of course, the criticism would be, well, if Angola was so important to him, then why did he ever write a novel about Angola? And I get that. But what is also very clear is that critics have never been very interested in uh, his uh, journalism on Angola. Despite the and there's no critical edition on those particular writings, um, it or the only it's probably perhaps arguably the one of the few or only um, pieces that don't have a critical edition, and um, Angola becomes the source of of anxiety for Garcia Marquez. He says as much in interviews. He says that since his infancy, he didn't have interview he didn't have interviews. He didn't have uh, um, uh, nightmares like he did. Uh, you know, until he went to Angola. And another key item here is that Garcia Marquez is unable to finish Chronicle of a Death Foretold, the novel that he sold most copies of uh, at the time of publication, um, or the novel that sold most copies at the time of publication. Um, He was unable to finish it until he returned from Angola. It took him 30 years to write, and he goes to Angola, returns, and then is able to uh, to finalize that novel, giving it a very particular spin and including um, a slave ship of Senegalese slaves that actually he claims, at least in the novel, and my reading of it, actually names Valle de las Animas, which is one of the most prominent ports of entry of the slave trade um, in, uh, in the Caribbean and uh, in one of the most important ports in, in Cartagena. Um, it's named after the shipwreck of Senegalese uh, slaves, but yet it's memorialized with a, with a statue of Christopher Columbus, right? And so this, these are sort of the, the, the sort of um, un, unveiled critiques that Garcia Marquez does of, of this Atlantic history and we're able to unlock them through paying particular attention to his Angolan experiences, right? Um, and his writing on that. Um, so those, so that speaks to, so where, uh, so there's, yeah, the, commodi- so the Africa rendered fearful, commodified, obliterated, and then the last chapter is, um, on distortion. Um, and, um, and I, I guess, and that one sort of, and does dialogue with Juno Diaz, because there's also distortion happening there that renders Africa fearful. But in the case of, uh, this last chapter, which is Rudolfo Anaya and Tomás Rivera, This is a a more so, perhaps a chapter that might also surprise just as much as the Garcia Marquez chapter surprises because we don't expect. Uh, to find um, these African traces in these authors. Garcia Marquez, perhaps a little bit more because he's Caribbean, although people would say, well, Angola, what does Angola have to do with Garcia Marquez, right? Well, which is unfortunate. And uh, But then in the case of Rodolfo Naya and Tomás Rivera, I mean, these are Chicano authors that are usually thought and read as having no um, affinity to the Caribbean and much less Africa, right? But the way that I enter into that space of, of the sort of the, the African reference in Anaya is through the plantocracy in the southwest and with the mar Rivera is frankly finding a very surprising poem in which he alludes to uh, the 19th century scramble for the Congo um, uh, you know <laughs> which it just appears in a poem right and so and then he of course he he there's an interview too that that better explains the background um, and the reasoning why he um, conjures Henry Stanley, this genocidal figure in the Congo, and also the person he rescued, abolitionist um, David Livingston. So, um, yeah, I don't know if that at all answered your question. Um, but um, yeah, yeah, but the imperialism is most, oh, imperialism in the U.S. Imperialism is mostly felt in the second and third chapters because um, especially with García Márquez, García Márquez's journalism with regards to Angola is defiantly anti-imperialist um, and uh, uses choice words to speak of the United States and its rampant uh, imperialist efforts to um, essentially, uh, overthrow uh, socialist or you know left-leaning uh, governments that have been sovereign and that have been placed and and have succeeded uh, during uh, the Cold War era, and um, and you can tell um, that there are traces of impending doom and um, and I don't know melancholia, right, um, in these writings about the U.S. Um, and I think and I, and I also have a, some, a, a part in the book that talks about the time that Garcia Marquez was in New York and saw what the United States was doing with the with the Cubans that were sent out to um, the, the Cuban um, exiliados right in the United States that are sent uh, to attack, um, you know, Cuban uh, the the uh, the you know during the Bay de Los Cochinos the attack the failed um Bay of Pigs attack he witnesses that in that era um and you know in 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 the flesh and also gets all these threats when he's working for Prince Latina uh in New York City and decides to then leave and you know mm-hmm. is is really fears for his life um within the space of the U S so so all of that is is uh is is part and parcel of this uh. You know the this obliteration, this uh, this repression of the African roots of uh, that are present in some of our most endeared writers.
0: Yeah, that that piece is missing um, so clearly because, at least for me, you know, I've this is my field. I've I've started studying all of this a few years ago, and a lot of these either people or uh, media objects or works are familiar to me or these historical events, but the way that you're putting them in conversation with each other is just so, so powerful. And you talk you talk about this in your book as part of your method, you know, the order in which and the kind of just juxtaposition of all of those events and people and works and reactions to Um, and it's just, it's very excellent. It's very, very compelling. Um, especially, you know, when I'm reading that poem that opens chapter four that you kind of touched on and then the, the the Stanley's role, and then how is he ending up here and the the history behind that? It's, It's just so fascinating. Um, I guess kind of going off of that, um, when you... Kind of think about the theoretical, and you talked about this a little bit at the beginning, but you, when you talk about the theoretical kind of, um, like the arc of theorizing African descent and African heritage and, you know, every word that comes after African, African, you know, blood, quote unquote, which is, Yeah, an essentializing kind of way of understanding that. Um, What, Where do you see, you know, even just in the last 10 years, where do you see kind of where people are landing on in terms of how do you deal with this messy kind of race? Uh, You talk about, you know, your book does talk about the universalizing narratives that have been thrown around. Um, I guess, how do you kind of see that conversation in terms of, um the work that you did in this book um in terms of how people are trying to theorize race without essentializing it, but also cr- creating these, or not creating, but drawing these trans Atlantic, transnational, trans global, trans um colonial, I guess you could say too, kind of threads between all of these places and people. It's a very broad question. <laughs>
1: No, and, and a very provocative one, and I don't mean to be provocative here in my answer, um, but, um, you know, I mean, quite honestly, this book came out be- from a, a restlessness that I had, or, or a, a, yeah, I guess a restlessness is a good word, um, in continuously seeing Blackness in Latinidad being theorized without Africa, in the same way that I was taken aback by, you know, Latinidad being theorized without Latin America, right? As, you know, the work of Josie Saldana and Kristen Silva-Gruz and Raul Coronado have all shown that it's, it's very hard to theorize these notions of Latinidad without Latin America, because it's, it's as if we're saying that, say, if you're doing border studies, migrants coming into the United States only start mattering once they enter the space of the U.S., so it's a problematic for me, and I realize that this will not be a book for everybody, um, to to think about um, you know these these spaces in the African continent that tell their own narratives to look towards in that direction will require, a lot of work less so um say um learning different languages i mean i for one i would wish that i would have hoped that i would have learned wallow from goon because those were some of the languages that were spoken where i did field work but but as josie sardanya says you know uh, doing this comparative work is less about being fluent in these languages than being fluent in their histories right and understanding that to make universalizing statements about the conditions of race without diversifying your archive is going to be a problem i mean you're going to come up out with you're going to come up with claims that are universalizing and essentializing that at the moment in which these essential these these these, these not essentializations but these statements about what we are as a field enter world literature they're going to become further essential, essentialized and um, and and flatten the truly heterogeneous nature um, of our of our literature, right? And and, and really flatten the cosmopolitan assemblages um, and, and visions of these beautiful writers, right? So I think that for me, uh, you know, somebody like Rudolfo Anaya, for me is Or Tomar Rivera, right, is 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 my fellow Mexican writer, right? He's also my fellow American writer. But he also happens. They also happen to be these writers that make very powerful connections to African history in ways that we are so timid to approach, in part because we think that that is going to be hostile to our American studies field. And it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be hostile. We can actually work we can actually learn to work comparatively and 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 transdisciplinarity n- narrowly. Um, for my my experience was an enriching one. I think I was very lucky to have this. What was that? I had not only worked with comparatists. When I was working on my degree, but I was also working uh, with uh, Stanford's Center for African Studies, which was mostly—I mean, I worked with a lot of historians. For example, it was actually a historian Richard Roberts, um, and along with Elizabeth Boye, as I mentioned in the book, that sent me out to do f- this field work. You know, and they said at the time I was—I um, um, was—I uh, was well. I was admitted as a student that was working mostly in the Caribbean and Latin America, but I really wanted to do this Latinx project. And I was lucky to find Jose David and work with him. Um, while well, the first years, years that I was at Stanford. And, uh, but then when I was um, in the Center for African Studies, they said, you know, nobody working on Latinx in Latin America is doing anything with Africa, but you know the actual archive of Africa, you know? And, uh, and this was shocking to me, right? Um, so when I say that I go and I do field work in West Africa, I mean that I actually go out to do, you know, this field work um, to get a sense of what those narratives were, what those proverbs were, what those oral histories are told, how, and to get a sense of how truly people depend on these UNESCO slave routes. Um, to survive, you know, and 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 yes, they're neoliberal projects. Yes, they're a neo—they're part of a neoliberal mechanism. This mechanism that um, that they are crushed under, but they're also reappropriating it, making their own spaces, just like the spaces of of vodun um, in Benin. You know that that they have been vodun. Vodun and the zombie have been so distorted and and desecrated, <laughs> you know. And and in these spaces, they're actually valorized, right? And they're saying, no, oh, the history of vodun. Let me tell. You about it, it's so wonderful. It's so magical, you know, magical in a good way, not in a sort of super, in a superficial magical way that you know, Halloweenish way. So, um, so that's what I would have to say about um, these notions of you know, interdisciplinarity and universalization. Um, I, I think that I hope that this. My hope, of course, is that we can build alliances with underrepresented communities across the globe, not just within the U.S., And this is, this does not dampen our solidarities with other multi-ethnic communities within the U.S. It only strengthens them because we begin to understand where some of our biases, uh, our anti-Black biases are coming from. And we're seeing a lot of these anti-Blackness discourses in the U.S. and recently, as we know, in L.A. And, you know, and, and, but we don't, and we say, oh, but these are, these are biases coming from Latin America. Yes, but Latin America, this is a lot more complicated, you know, and it's, it's coming from not only iberian imperialism but also french imperialism and belgian imperialism and it's coming from the ways in which these discourses were pronounced here and there and there in africa so it's it's a lot more complicated and i think that um yeah, and so that's what I would have to say. I would encourage any student wanting to to be reflective, reflect to reflect on race construction, to 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 do so in a way that um, you know they can think outside the box, think in a little bit more of a holistic way, and, and not be you know not be um, you know intimidated by the comparativism that that kind of um, the kind of work would entail. Um, I think it, it can only strengthen uh, their their project but also um, help them arrive to a critical thinking that's a lot more nuanced and um, yeah, I will just stop there. <laughs> I think I said enough.
0: Now that's that's an excellent answer and I think just like with your book, you do such a good job of capturing all of those nuances. In very particular moments, which is just so hard to do where you're zooming in and out and in and, and out just over and over again. But um, yeah, that's that's great. And the, the same with as a historian who's very interested in race and kind of the formations of race. Um, I feel like the narrative that I got and probably you got and most people do get is you know, the world was just the world and people were in their little spots. And then in the 60s, globalization happened. And it's, it's just completely inaccurate because people have been moving (laughs) in in one way to put it for millennia. And those, that means that there is nothing fixed about identity or place ever in any case. And then, it's going to necessarily require these very complex mappings. Um, And I I try to always start with that, you know, when you're trying to tell people about the Caribbean, you know, particularly North Americans, North U.S. white Americans in particular who have no understanding of the Caribbean, um, just trying to explain where everyone came from. And even that's going to be inaccurate because, you know, the colonial authorities were calling people, uh, Lusumi or Ganga or Congo and that's going to be completely inaccurate because that's where they were captured and that's where the, the record says they were, ca- it's just never going to be um, accurate or enough but your work I when I was reading this I just was like this is pioneering, this is this entry point into actual African archives and you know going beyond what a lot of us do which I you know kind of guilty of too with my work is well Africa really matters but we're focusing on you know the Caribbean <laughs> um and then being able to go into that um kind of thread is so so important so valuable um and hopefully it'll move in that direction
1: <laughs> i mean part of it i have to say that part of it i i was it was hel- i was helped by the fact that i sp- grew up speaking Spanish and English. So I already had those languages. And so then French was easier for me to pick up, just because I already spoke Spanish, right. And so as romance languages, they're easy. So those archives, and then the ones in Portuguese, Portuguese, I eventually picked up later, Um, much less perfect, than my, much less, I mean, it's just my, my Portuguese now is terrible. But um, but I was able to access these archives, because I had, you know, I had, I did have that linguistic fluency. And I know that's not for everyone, but I, I do think that this notion of of being of being excited about learning different languages is also part of what we need to move. That's the direction we I think that we need to move in, uh, in the U.S. Because we we have been sort of culturally isolated, despite the fact that the United States is is really a bilingual society. Right, Spanish was one of the first languages spoken in the U.S. Um, prior to even being U.S., it's it's just you know it, it, this notion that we're a mono. Lingual society is just wrong and I think that 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 our disciplines have in some ways to to reflect that so so we don't become this imperialist you know um in these you know or so our disciplines don't become uh, linguistically imperialistic like that right I think that there is this notion that um yeah, that, that is harder to learn a language and why should one spend time if one wants to like learn the theory and, and, and I understand all of that. But I also think that if there's a will, there's a way and uh, and a lot of these archives could also be accessed with, um, you know, uh, with. You know, in 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 English language, there's lots of archives about you know West Africa in in the English language as well. It's just that we see it as so geographically distanced that we don't. Um, yeah, that we just find it to be inaccessible. But there's also something that to say about funding. Of course, you know, you have to f- funding for these kinds of. And so if you are, um, you know, in a u- more underrepresented kind of program or if the university doesn't value your program, your degree program as much as others, then you're competing for funds that are unavailable to you and things like that. So, so I, I get I get all of that. Um, but um But yeah, so I, but I did with the resources and the linguistic abilities that I had, I did the best I could.
0: (laughs) No, it's, it's great. And that's really important. Um, Yeah, I learned Spanish in undergrad and was okay at it for a while and then lost it and then was like, I'm writing my dissertation on Cuba. And then in some ways, me trying to relearn Spanish in six months um, became like this kind of very you know obviously very personal emotional intimate thing because language is all of those things and this kind of almost a form of praxis in itself is kind of how I've been viewing it where it's like I am trying to relearn this language that I halfway learned before and now we're going to um, turn that into a meditation and, and into a and also a practice in humility because (laughs) how how many people know multiple languages obviously so many people across the world and not a lot of you know again white u.s northern american based people um so yeah it's it's kind of a, a good humbling tool and also just so important um and hopefully that's the direction we'll continue to go in um and kind of along with that one of the questions that we can ask or are you know told to ask on this podcast is, how is your book going to save the world? Um, and I kind of, you know, think it's this cheeky kind of, oh, well, you know, it's kind of said tongue in cheek. But um, I want to kind of flip that question a little bit and talk about how you in your conclusion, you critique UNESCO and others kind of impulses to want to save the world and do diversity and do not even really reparations, but the, the, the easy kind of form of recognizing that slavery happened. While simultaneously, like you said, it's really important to note that people in a lot of countries, a lot of African countries, et cetera, are kind of reclaiming that to a degree and making it their own and telling these stories, um, and but then also it's happening where there's this Western kind of hegemony over the literature, and that results in African epistemologies being overlooked. Um, and to summarize all of what we've been talking about, how does your book start the work of countering the impulse of let's save the world by you know not being critical or not being fully truly multilingualistic, multi-interdisciplinary I'm actually looking at the the realities of um what happened with african influence in these countries and literatures um and you're using that african that latin african access as you say um how does your method of reading textual memorials and using the Latin Af- African axis kind of help you um, critique the uncritical "let's save the world" impulses? <laughs> um,
1: well, so first of all, obviously, I don't think that this book is gonna, you know, save the world. I'm sure that that's the the regular answer. Um, but I, I mean, I, I, I do hope, and and this sort of reminds me of a conversation I had once with, uh, with David Scott, you know, on his like, you know, conscripts and all of these wonderful books in which, you know, people um, were, you know, misreading him and calling him an Afro pessimist and and these kinds of things, and and uh, and I, I, so I don't think that like him uh, or like like this discussion that I was having in terms of. Um, you know, what what can what can nostalgia do for us or what can uh, you know, what can tragedy do for us? You know, those are some of the questions that, you know, here, obviously, there's the, the tragedy here is this this the the contact of the Americas and Africa during the slave trade. Right. That 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 was the form of contact and that the form of recontact is through these UNESCO slave routes. Right. It's sort of like a. Um, a way of, of, um, but, but of course the, the problem is that these UNESCO slave routes are also being produced by neoliber- neoliberal, um, you know, structures and that's a problem. And, um, so, so, so with all of this in mind, uh, I was, I was very much inspired by the work of Sarah Bruyette um, UNESCO and the fate of the literary where, um, and then also an essay that she has on the African hustle in which she, she really nuances uh, this conversation that I've been having and an article that I published uh, back in 20, 2015 about this this notion of, like, African authenticity and what does that mean, you know? And, and for her in terms of the li- African literary world, you know, she she com- comes into this question with, you know, saying basically, uh, and I don't want to, like, I don't want to... Um, mischaracterize her work here Um, but the notion that I hold on to in her work is you know when we think of African literature we usually think of those that again are circulating widely in world literature right we think of those that have won these awards people that have been granted these awards these awards are usually financed by petrodollars right and and that is all a problem because rather than reading those that publish in their own language like say boys Bois Diop in Senegal, that publishes in Wolof, right? We are reading um, these other authors that speak, uh, that are not only publishing in a language that we can understand and access, but are also writing through these conventions that are my- financed and, and, man- and mediated by the West. And that's a problem too. So how can we get to this sort of, this reference this is how it goes back to what Achio Bejas is talking about in a novel. So how can we, so how can we actually, um, you know, rehabilitate um, a connection that is not with, with, you know the other in the global South that is not f- being filtered by these conventions in the West. And that's a very complicated question. Um, I think that there's no easy answer. I mean, again, I, I cited, um, you know, David Scott and Sarah Bruyette. I think that these scholars, uh, Nacho Sanchez Prado has this wonderful article on the lack of an African reference for Mexican literature. Right. So all of these, all of these, these, these scholars I really admire, um, um, are 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 in the in the business of of opening our eyes to these through the ways in which literature itself and our discipline is complicit in um furthering our you know south south solidarity if you will um or or in the case of Latinos like their south the south in entre in a quote in in quote in quotation marks right in um the south but in the global north and our connection with the global south how do we how do we affect that kind of solidarity when we exist in a system that is by definition uh mediated and constructed by hegemonic forms and dictates right um and um So, and again, UNESCO slave route is one of those, but I think that in ways, in if we can reappropriate them in the same way that locals reappropriate the slave routes and the ways in which I appropriate, reappropriate these textual memorials, I think it puts us a step closer um, towards understanding uh, or reflecting what these notions of comparativism in the global South truly look like.
0: Right. Yeah. Um, and that is an important point, trying to uh, acknowledge the realities, but then also acknowledge that the realities don't have to be the realities and balancing that is tricky. Um, and you briefly mentioned this at the beginning, but did this book lead into another book? Or are you working on a current project? Or do you have ideas for using what you've done in this book to kind of move forward?
1: when I uh, published on social media that I that I just published an article on my second project, a friend wrote me in, um, alarm of saying, wait a second. <laughs> I hope you have a chance to enjoy your first book <laughs> before you launch into this. And, uh, and yes, I mean, but of course we're, we're, our minds, I mean, I guess we're, I'm, I I in my case, I, I think that the way in which I end this project, um, sort of naturally launched me into the second project. And I end the book by uh, discussing how, if, you know, Latinx Caribbean writers are, you know, constituting what we call a Latin Africa, sort of this desire to see, you um, the solidarity with not an imagined Africa, but a but a sort of more concrete Africa. Then, um, how is it that African writers, in turn, are projecting these notions, um, or or how are how are they understanding the referent of Latin America and the Americas? Um, you know, more broadly construed, and uh, and it turns out that writers like Sami Chak um, from um, uh, from Togo or um, Tierno Monenembo from Guinea are writers that have been for some time uh, not in one or two but several uh, novels have been writing about um, Latin America, but are ways that are very not problematic, but they're they are <laughs> complex to leave it vague like that. Um, and just that there's a sense that the the leftist promise of 20th century Latin America has left Latin America bereft of its leftist, you know, promise. I don't know. It's, it's leftist uh, sort of this uh, this cosmopolitanism that could have been achieved has been left barren. Right. Um, and um, and you see that in Fil de Mexico by Sami Chak. You see this in. Uh, um, about Cuba actually it's in French um, and then you also see this in some um, uh, similarly in some Mexican writers that I'm looking at like Maria Sa Puga um, you see this in Veronica Volco um, you see you see a little bit less of the pessimism but because because the pessimistic, Era had not yet happened, <laughs> so um, so I'm interested in thinking about um, these these connections. Um, I'm also interested in figuring out how we create structures that allow. For us to access these novels, because without translation into English, because neither of these novels are translated into a common language. But the problem is that they're also not translated into each other's languages. So Marielle Sapuga is not translated into French for these francophone authors that would otherwise be t- thinking about the spaces that she is, and vice versa. So you know, how do we? You know, this this is a problem. It's a comparative dilemma, right? And. Uh, so that's those are the spaces that I'm moving into, um,
0: and uh, and that obsess me. <laughs> well, that's a perfect kind of uh, transition from this book into a, another project that really relates, but is a completely different dimension. Um, so that's that's great. Looking forward to reading that. Hopefully, eventually, few years um, <laughs> give you lots of time to write it, <laughs> um, but. Thank you so much for talking with us today about uh, your book, and it is um, being, it's coming out right now, uh, November 3rd, so uh, make sure to get a copy. And thank you so much again, Dr. Quesada, for coming on today.
1: A pleasure, Anna. Thank you for having me. Of course.